Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. We're reminded that God's Word is sufficient. Sufficient for what we need today. Sufficient in all things for life and godliness. And so we want to be a church that lives like it, acts like it. That's why we go to God's Word time and time and time again and it never runs dry. We'll draw your attention this morning to the book of Exodus, chapter 19, the first six verses. And would you stand with me as we read God's word? And when I get to the end of verse six, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful for God's precious and holy Word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh, Father, make your word a swift word passing from ear to heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it was given. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
Do you consider yourself to be someone who is characterized as devoted? Are you a devoted person? Devotion is fairly meaningless unless there is something or someone you are devoted to. Devotion must have an object. You might be devoted to your spouse, devoted to your kids, to your grandkids, to many other family relationships. You might be devoted to something. You could be devoted to your job or career, devoted to a particular hobby, devoted to a club or sports team. You could be devoted to Christ's church. But most importantly, are you devoted to God? As we think about our devotion primarily and fundamentally and first to God, let us be reminded that He is devoted to us. In fact, we expect God to be devoted to us, don't we? When we need him, we expect him to be there. When we are in need, we expect him to give. When we are in turmoil and in trouble, we expect him to bring comfort and ease. Another way of saying that is we expect God to be faithful to us. Does God have any right for uh, him to expect us to be faithful or devoted to him. Because if I were to make a guess, I would say, we want God to be faithful all the time. (laughs) We want God to be devoted all the time. Not just some of the time, all the time. Does he have the right to demand the same from us? to be devoted, to be faithful to Him all the time. Praise God that when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Thank you, when our devotion fails, His devotion does not fail and never will fail. Are you devoted to God? Maybe there would be someone here this morning who would say, no, I'm not devoted to God. You might be devoted to a lot of other things, a lot of good things. But would you admit that being devoted to God is not one of those things? It's not a correct description of your life. I hope and pray that today you might become devoted to God. I hope and pray that you would see what it looks like to be devoted to God and why that is of utmost importance in your life. Maybe, on the other hand, you would say, yes, I am devoted to God. And I would ask you, how do you know you are devoted to God?
What does devotion look like in your life? What evidence is there that you are devoted to God? And could it ever be that sometimes people might think that they are devoted to God when in truth they are only devoted to themselves? That is a most dangerous category to be in. And so we must hear these words from James chapter 1, verses 22 and following. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Have you looked at yourself in a mirror this morning? Do you remember what you look like? If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into what? The perfect law, and then how does James describe it? The law of liberty. The law that gives you freedom and perseveres, being no, who, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing. Devotion is not merely an inner feeling. It is shown through our actions. True devotion is demonstrated in the lives who are Christ's. But false devotion can be deceiving. With the beginning of chapter 19 in the book of Exodus, we come to this next major section in the book. The first section, the first 18 chapters, the focus was on being delivered by God. And we saw God's great hand of deliverance as he brought the people, brought the Israelites out of Egypt. But now with this next section in focus, we see what it means to be devoted to God. So first we were delivered by God, and now this next section, being devoted to God. And what does it mean to be devoted to God? Why should we be devoted to God? What does it look like when one's life is devoted to Yahweh? And out of our devotion to Yahweh, it's all framed around our relationship with him. We are people who live in relationship with the Lord. That we can live in relationship, that he has designed us to be people who live in relationship with him. And the Bible defines what this relationship with the Lord looks like with one word. And that word is the word covenant. We are in covenant relationship with the Lord. Do you use that word much, covenant? What is that? What does it mean? Well, how about a definition? 
The covenant is an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties involving a solemn binding obligation specified on the part of at least one of the parties toward the other made by an oath under threat of divine curse and ratified by a visual ritual. That's a long, big, clunky definition. Maybe we could boil it all down for a second. It's an oath-bound commitment. I am making a promise to you. Because I'm making this promise to you, I am binding myself to the obligation of this promise. And I am making an oath and saying that would God curse me if I do not keep this oath, then I am going to visually demonstrate that I am holding fast to this oath and to this promise by the way that I live, by what I do. And this is going to be an enduring agreement. It's going to go on. It's not going to end. It's not going to, it's going to stop. We need to know this word covenant. We need to know it because covenants form the backbone of all Scripture. They run through Scripture from beginning to end. And what makes these covenants amazing is that these are covenants between God and man. That God is making promises. That God is in such a way binding himself to mankind. God is doing something and saying, I'm going to make this enduring agreement with you. I want to be in this close relationship with you. And that God would say, upon my own hurt, upon my own curse, if I don't keep my promise to you, my beloved people. These covenants are between the Creator and the people whom He has created and called to be His very own. These are covenants between the divine and the mortal, the infinite and the finite, the unchanging one and the ever-changing ones. And oh, what desire we see from the holy and transcendent God that He would want to live in relationship with us that he would show his devotion to us to do such miraculous, amazing, and astounding things to move heaven and earth so that we could live in relationship with him. Oh, what God has not done to bring us to himself, to call us his own. And God establishes his kingdom through the covenants that he makes with his people and if you want to know God, if you want to know what God is doing in the world and what he has done, you have to look no further than what he has done in the covenants that he has made. And so chapter 19 begins to lay out the background of the covenant that the Lord is about to make with Israel. And in these first few verses of chapter 19, the Lord communicates his purpose for this covenant. What is the purpose? What is the design of this covenant so that Israel would live in relationship with him? And what might we learn from the purpose of this covenant about how we are to live in relationship with the Lord? First, we have to be familiar with the setting that we find here in verses 1 through 3. Here we are, the third moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. 
And look at where these people have come. Where have they come? Here they are now encamping in the wilderness of Sinai. They have left this place called Rephidim. Remember what happened at Rephidim? Rephidim, that was the place where there was no water. Rephidim was the place where they were attacked by the Amalekites. It was the place of uncertainty and insecurity. They left that place of Rephidim, and where have they come to now? Where are they? They are encamping in the wilderness of Sinai. Still a wilderness, but this is a wilderness where there is a mountain. And as you read in chapter 18, verse 5, this mountain is not just any mountain. This is the mountain that we know to be Mount Sinai, and this is what the Bible calls the very mountain of God. We are to be reassured as we read these words in this introduction because of what the Lord had promised in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. Do you remember what he promised? you remember when the Lord called Moses out of the burning bush? He made this promise, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." That's where the people are. They are back to this mountain where the Lord called Moses. This is where they were going to serve God. This is where they were going to worship God. The same mountain where the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush all of those years before. Moses is back to this special place, this mountain. Not like any other mountain. This is the link between heaven and earth. This is where we find the very presence of God himself. And it says that Moses went up on this mountain. Who can do that? Who can go up? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And here is Moses going up, ascending the mountain of God. This is what Moses will do three times in this chapter. Three times he will go up and come down. He will go up and he will come down. He will go up, and he will come down. Going to the very presence of God. And what do we see that it says here in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 19? While Moses went up to God, the Lord, Yahweh, called to him out of the mountain. And again, that's the same thing that we heard in Exodus 3. Exodus 3, 4, it says, God called to him out of the bush. And so now here again is the Lord calling to Moses, calling to his servant. It's like we're seeing the same event repeated again. But now it's not on this small scale of just Moses calling or or God calling Moses to serve him, but it's actually the Lord calling his people to serve him. What do we see happen? We see the Lord who fulfills all of his promise call Moses, and again he says to him, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. In this verse sentence, we are told what we are to expect and what's about to come. So look at that there for a moment. This is the end of verse 3. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. 
the way that these two names are used, they're used synonymously. They're used in parallel, right? They're used, they're a little bit different, but they're trying to say the same thing. So, thus you shall say, to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel. Why does the Lord use these two names and these two terms together? In fact, when you look in God's Word, and in the Old Testament in particular, there's not very many places where these two words, Jacob and Israel, go together. But as we think of them as synonymous, as meaning the same thing, it actually is meant to draw our minds to what we know about the life of Jacob. Do you remember Jacob back in Genesis? In Genesis 32, what was one of the main things that happened in Jacob's life? He wrestled with God. And he would not let God go. Not until you bless me, God. And the Lord prevailed by putting Jacob's hip out of place, right? Touching his hip, his hip goes out of place, and the Lord prevails. But then what does God say to Jacob? Genesis 32, verses 24 and following, he says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but what? Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What happened in Jacob's life? There when he was wrestling with God. Something miraculous, something astounding. His name was changed. He was transformed. He no longer was Jacob. Now he was Israel. Jacob experienced a personal transformation, and so his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. So why does the Lord use these terms here? House of Jacob and the sons or the people of Israel in this one sentence? Could it be to set up our expectations that a transformation is about to happen? And this transformation is not of one man, but this is to be the transformation of a whole people. The covenant God is establishing with his people is to have a transformative effect upon their lives and upon their souls. The people should not be different after this encounter with God. And isn't that the way it is when people encounter the Lord? They are changed. They are transformed. It is unexplainable. It is unpredictable. But when it happens, it's undeniable. What happened when Saul on the road to Damascus met Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, what happened? Saul was changed because he met the Lord. And he could not stay the same. He was transformed by Jesus. And in this relationship that Israel is about to have and be brought into with God, it's to have a transforming and changing effect in their lives. They cannot be the same. I mean, they were grumbling a few chapters before this. Has that change happened in your life? Undeniable change because you've met and encountered the Lord. It has to happen.
They could not stay the same. We cannot stay the same. So as we are expecting this transformation to happen, how does this transformation take place? It takes place with the unfolding truths that this relationship is built upon. And so the Lord is now coming. He's saying, you're going to be changed. You're going to be transformed. And how do I know you're going to be transformed and changed? Because of these truths that I'm about to tell you. These truths are to be the foundation of your transformation. So three truths then that come to us from this text this morning that tell us about our relationship with the Lord. So that you can find these in your bulletin if you find that helpful to follow along. This is our outline for this morning. But number one, our relationship with the Lord is rooted in his act of redemption. Our relationship with the Lord is rooted in his act of redemption. We would be mistaken if we were to think that the covenant relationship between God and his people only starts here at Mount Sinai. Because the very first thing that the Lord does is he draws our minds back to the past, to what he has already done. His actions already demonstrate that he is living in relationship with his people. And so look at what he does here. In verse 4, what are the words that Moses is to tell the people? You yourselves have seen. He calls them to testify and to witness. They have been eyewitnesses to the Lord's saving work. They have front row seats. They have seen and experienced all that the Lord has done and all of his greatness and his glory. And there is no way for them to get around it. They have seen what is wondrous and miraculous and supernatural. They have seen what the Lord did to the Egyptians, how Yahweh striked the Egyptians and Pharaoh ten times with his judgment. They saw how the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. They saw how the Lord had thrown the horse and rider into the sea at the Red Sea. They had seen the sovereign Lord who is above all things and over all things. The one who emerges victorious over Pharaoh and over his army. And so that they're asking, who is like the Lord our God? There is no one like the Lord our God. The Israelites were eyewitnesses to the judgment that fell upon the enemies of God. But they were also witnesses to the miraculous salvation he brought to them. They were delivered by God. They were rescued. They were redeemed. Yahweh brought them out with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm out of the iron furnace that was Egypt. They were witnesses to their own resurrection when they were oppressed and afflicted, when they were bound and enslaved to a harsh taskmaster when it appeared that there was no way out and no chance for freedom, the Lord swooped in and saved his people. 
And notice what it says here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, that's the next phrase. Look at how the Lord speaks. He does not say, how I saved you, or how I delivered you, or how I redeemed you. What does he say? He uses an illustration, a beautiful analogy to get across the beauty of salvation. Yahweh says, how I bore you on eagles' wings. What a majestic sight to see an eagle soar in the heavens, high above the earth, with such ease and grace. And the Lord uses this picture to etch into our minds what he does when he saves his people. Notice first, it is what he does. He bore them. He carried them. It is not what they had done to save themselves. It is all his work from beginning to end. And notice also the picture of power and of strength. Not only is the eagle majestic in its, in its flight, it's also strong and powerful. Nothing could stop it. Nothing could get in its way. And so it was by the power of God that they were saved. It was also through the Lord's many provisions. Look at all that God had given them. He provided a Passover lamb. He provided a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them and to protect them from the extreme heat of the day and to keep them warm in the night. The sun won't strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He provided quail in the daily provision of manna. He gushed forth water out of the rock. He overcame the Amalekites who attacked them. How this is one beautiful, miraculous, supernatural picture of God's saving grace. Salvation is always a miracle. And finally, what does it say there that he did? You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and what? And brought you to myself. Here is the greatest gain and greatest reward that we could ever imagine. The Lord brought the Israelites to himself. And this is what happens when the Lord saves you. You get God. You are brought into relationship with him. You are reconciled to him. You are to live in fellowship and harmony and peace with him. And the language that Yahweh uses here is covenantal language. It's the language of the bridegroom bringing his bride into the wedding chamber. In fact, it's the same word that's used at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. This is when God was making the woman... Out of the rib of Adam. And it says there in Genesis 2, 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And then what? And he brought her to the man. God designed, made marriage, and he brought woman to the man in a marriage ceremony. And what is God saying here now to his people. I've married you. You are my bride. 
I've brought you to myself. I have this close and intimate relationship with you. See my love, see my covenantal love that I've covered you with my wings. And oh, that we would cry out. Bring us to yourself, O Lord. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done through the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that what? Why did Jesus Christ suffer for our sins? Why did the righteous die for the unrighteous? Here's what it says next. That he might bring us to God. That's the purpose, the intended result. So that we might live in communion and fellowship and unity with this God. So that he might make a way back to the garden where Adam and Eve once dwelled in perfect fellowship with the God Almighty. That Jesus might mend the brokenness and bring together what was separated that, that we might be one. This is what our relationship with God is rooted in and grounded in. Our relationship with Him is rooted and grounded in His act of redemption for us. It is the redemptive act of God where He made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our relationship with God is established by His grace, by His mercy, by His abounding steadfast love, by Him moving toward us who were dead in our trespasses and sin. Without God and with no hope in this world and according to His own plan, His own Son was sacrificed so that we might be forgiven of our sin and resurrected to new life, to be brought with God and now to be one who is called the beautiful bride of Christ, clothed in pure white linen as those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus has brought us to God and brought us to God through the costly sacrifice of Himself on the cross. And so our relationship with the Lord is rooted in his act of redemption. But secondly, our relationship with the Lord requires obedience. Our relationship with the Lord requires obedience. Requires our obedience. Last week, I made this simple statement. The Bible teaches us how to read the Bible. The Bible teaches us how to read the Bible. And we come to this next part of God's word now. Verse 5. Now, therefore. And I think the ESV is right in putting that therefore there because... It's giving us this idea that verse 5 flows out of verse 4. That we have to get verse 4 right if we're going to get verse 5 right. And that's why there's this therefore. 
on account of what the Lord has done, on account of how he bore you on eagles' wings, on account of the fact that he has brought you to himself, therefore you will indeed obey his voice and keep his covenant. And how I pray that these words would be music to our ears. Could that, would that ever be the case? Who wants to hear that they need to obey, that you need to be obedient? Could anything cause our world to recoil more than to hear that they need to obey? That they would recoil to hear that there is an authority greater than themselves, that there is someone outside of them and bigger than them and more important than them who demands their obedience? Do we ever shy away from obedience or in any way downplay obedience? Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. I will make my own decisions for myself. I will do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Do we really have to obey? And could we ever think as believers? Well, yes, but the Lord forgives, right? Doesn't God's grace abound to us when we sin and maintain our justified status before him? Maybe we should sin that grace might abound. May it never be. No, no, a thousand times no. We are called to obedience. Obedience before a gracious and loving God. But he emphasizes obedience here by saying, obeying, you will obey my voice. Or hearing, you will listen to my voice. And so Yahweh is stressing the need for us to obey him. But is there any question as to where our motivation to obey the Lord comes from? (laughs) Have you ever heard a child ask their parent, why should I obey you? And the parents say, because I said so. Now, there might be a time for a parent to say, because I said so. There might be a time to explain why. But thanks be to God, that's not what he does here with us. We have already heard what he says. Because I fought for you. Because I defeated your worst enemy. Because I swooped in miraculously into your life. Because I opened your eyes to the truth. Because I gave you life. Because I gave you love. My great love. Even when you did not love me. Even when you were ungodly. Even when you were weak. Even when you were my enemy. Even when you were a sinner. I loved you and sent my son to die in your place. What great news. Grace precedes law. Grace is the engine that drives our obedience. And so how is it that we, dear Christian, dear brother and sister, how is it that we are going to cultivate greater obedience in our lives? Oftentimes we think of all the things that we need to do. How do I need to obey? Or could we rather fill up our gaze with all that God has done in Christ Jesus and see the abundant grace of God flowing to you and let that be the motivating factor that brings sincere and pure obedience from your heart? 
Grace is not a deterrent or an excuse for not obeying. Grace is the reason why we obey. And grace, grace is the desire for why we want to obey. These Israelites are also called to keep the Lord's covenant. There are going to be covenant stipulations, ways that they are supposed to live before God to show their faith and their devotion to Him. But here it says they are to keep, that is, they are to uphold God's covenant as holy, as sacred. This is a relationship that they, are worth, that they believe is worth dying for. And let, it, let us make sure we get this right. The Israelites were not ordered to obey the Lord and keep his covenant in order that they might enter into the covenant. But they, already being in covenant, were called to obey so that they might enjoy the benefits and the privileges of God's people. This is where we so often get it wrong. The obedience wasn't the way into the covenant relationship with the Lord. The obedience was the result of being in a relationship with the Lord. Our world would like to make our obedience or the things that we do our way to God. But God makes a way through His Son where he does all of the work to save us. So now we are free to obey. We want to obey. Do you want to obey? Is that your heart's desire? Maybe you would say, it's not my heart's desire, but I want it to be my heart's desire. <laughs> How do, you, how do you grow? How do you fan that little spark into a flame? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Number three, our relationship with the Lord results in a new identity. Our relationship with the Lord results in a new identity. Here is this if-then in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then, then, here's what's flowing out of this, this obligation that you have. You have this obligation now because you're in this relationship to obey him. And what's going to flow out of that? It's going to be this new identity. You ever wish that you were somebody else? You ever wish that you had a, a different life? You ever wish that maybe you could just have a redo? Let's start it over again. What promise does God give of this new identity when he says, this is who you will be? I will give you a new identity. In fact, think about it. As of yet, the Lord had not given them the Ten Commandments, the stipulations. 
What does he tell them first? This is who I want you to be. Who you are to be. Your identity as a people, as my people. That comes first. And what does he say? You will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So the Lord is saying, I own everything. Everything is mine. I already possess everything. You can't give me something that I don't already own. But he says, you will be my treasured, my, <laughs> the word there is, you will be a peculiar, peculiar possession. We're peculiar, all right. <laughs> but it's this treasured, cherished, distinct possession. It speaks of a, a king's treasure where he has some of his treasure that he is set apart, he's taken apart, and this is the treasure that he really cares for and takes care of. And so here is the Lord saying, you will be my treasured people. You will have a chosen place among our relationship. And what's interesting here is, as we think about this idea of being a treasured possession, God's treasured possession, we read this in Malachi chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. I think this help, helps illuminate more what is being said here. Malachi three seventeen. says this, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession. So there it is, same words, my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So what is this treasured possession like? Here again, is this parallel, right? That's divided by this word and. So on one side, I will make up my treasured possession, and here's the parallel side, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So what is being said there? Well, it's being said that this treasure possession is like a son who serves. That those two ideas are synonymous. If you are God's treasure possession, what does that look like? Well, you are a son who serves him. That's how you know if you're his treasure possession. You serve him. And in fact, I think that brings us now back here to Exodus 19, for look at what it says. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then again, this parallel statement saying the same thing in a slightly different way. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here it is, a treasured possession. Well, what does that look like? It looks like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does this mean, a kingdom of priests? And I think from the way that it's worded here, this kingdom of priests are priests who have a royal status. It's not like these, this word kingdom and priests are separated. It's like what we read elsewhere. It's a royal priesthood. And think of the change, the transformation. We talked about the transformation that's happened. They've been transformed from slaves to now a royal priesthood. What a beautiful transformation. 
But what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Here's a tip. When you read God's word to find out what something means, look around it. What does it mean to be a priest in particular? We'll look at verse 22 of the same chapter. And let the priests, so now we're getting an idea. Okay, what do priests do? What's their function? What's their role? How are we to understand them? That's what we're asking. And verse 22 is saying, And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So what are these priests doing? They're consecrating themselves. They're setting themselves apart because they are They are people who serve in the presence of the Lord. And so that's what these kingdom of priests are going to do. They are going to be serving in the presence of the Almighty God. They are going to be in the midst of His holiness and His glory and His greatness. And then what does it say? And they are to be a holy nation. That is a distinct nation, a devoted nation, A nation that doesn't look like all the other nations of the world. This is a holy nation that has been set apart, devoted to God and to God alone. And it's these two terms that really get us back to why God has created us in the first place. He created Adam and Eve to be those who spread God's glory over the globe. And that's what these kingdom of priests and holy nations That's what they are to do. They are to spread God's glory over the entire globe. To be his representatives to the world. And so, it's interesting. God's calling the people back to what he called Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation How are we to think about this as Christians? Will you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2? First Peter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The one upon whom our lives is built, the one upon whom the church is built. We have believed in him and we have believed in him and because we have believed in him, we will not be put to shame. There are those who will reject Christ. He will be to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and they will stumble. Why? Because they will disobey the word as they were destined to do. But, verse 9, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Did you hear it? Did you hear it, dear brother and sister? Think again to what it says in Exodus. You shall be my treasure possession. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But now, what does Peter say? He no longer says, but you will be as if it's in a future time, a future day. This is something that you can look forward to. What does he say? But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. There is no waiting for you to become this. You are it now. And why are you this now? Because of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, who is our cornerstone. Because he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because he has called you into his presence to serve him now. And so then what? So proclaim these excellencies. Tell the world about Jesus Christ. Tell him of what he has, of what he has done for you. How he has bore you on eagle's wings. How he has saved you. As you were once someone who had no mercy. But God in his love lavished his mercy upon you. Once you were not a people, once we were not a people, once we were nothing, we were dead, we were dying, we were wallowing in our own blood, but Jesus Christ has made us a people alive to walk in newness of life for him. And then what happens? People see us, and while they might speak against us as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the ministry that we have in this world for God's glory to be known, for God's glory to be seen, and it happens here, dear brother and sister, in the church, in the people of God. This is who we are now. We're not looking forward to being a royal priesthood. We're not looking forward to being a holy nation. We're not looking forward to being God's treasured possession. We are those things now. And this is what the angels praised and sang in the book of Revelation that we already heard this morning. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And what should that then elicit in our hearts? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
and all God's people who have believed in this lamb and in this cornerstone, who have been made God's own treasured possession, his royal priesthood, and his holy nation, say together, amen. Father, we thank you for your word. May we be living this reality in our lives. May we proclaim these excellencies. May we not be quiet. May we not hold them in secret or keep them to ourselves. But may we let the world know Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who died and rose again to save sinners and give them new life. Forgive us, O Lord, for those times when we have not proclaimed your excellencies. Forgive us for the times when our hearts have been cold to your excellencies. Forgive us for the times when we wanted to be more like the world. But let us live in this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And let us persevere. As we look back to the cross, we also look forward to the day of our Savior's return. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.